see everybody that's here this morning. Those of you that are visiting, we're glad you're here. We want to invite you to come back at every opportunity you have. Well, I think we do have visitors in the crowd, so we are glad you're with us this morning. One quick announcement before I get into the lesson. Uh, I put up a new list on the bulletin board in the foyer of upcoming events. If you notice on the bulletin, I stick a little blurb on there. I think I've got it in there this week, but uh, check the bulletin board for those. There are a number of events that are coming up. There's a, a Bible movie night that's coming up, a game night that's coming up, etc., etc. Um, you can check the bulletin board, and I'll put a new one up about every month. So uh, make sure you get a chance to do that and take notice of some of those things that will be coming up. One thing that's not on there, a tentative date, a pretty sure date for our annual, we didn't do it last year because of construction over here, but our annual sports day and picnic and so forth around the corner at the park. Um, if you want to mark your calendars early, that's uh, we're looking at July 15th for that. So quickly announce that. Without any further delay, though, let's get right into the lesson. We are talking about this year looking at the Lord's church, things that characterize it, identify his church, etc. And in particular, this quarter, we're emphasizing truth in the Lord's church, or truth in my church, hopefully here. Um, we emphasize that. And in particular this, this morning, I want to talk about the coexistence of grace and truth. And the reason I say it that way will become apparent in just a moment. But grace and truth, and I'm quoting from John 1, I'll get to that passage, but that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's uh, take notice, though, of what we find out in the religious world, and more and more and more what we are finding among churches of Christ, especially in this country, and it may well be in, in countries around the world, this is the case with the church. But we hear things like this. There is what is known as the Grace Unity Movement. First time I ever heard about this, I'd probably been a Christian in about a year, and I was sitting in a Bible class, and somebody brought up the Grace Unity Movement. Obviously, I had no clue what they were talking about, but they went on to describe brethren who were beginning to talk about, in a very ecumenical sense, they were beginning to talk about uniting on the basis of grace. Now, that doesn't sound bad. In fact, all of these things I'm going to put up here, there's an element within them that is true, and that certainly does not sound bad until you begin to think about it and think about where you could take that. And believe me, anything you can imagine has been done already. So, where you could take that. But the idea of allowing God's grace and this idea of just God covering things by His grace and being able to unite even when there are differences. And so you get things like this. Grace fellowship. And sometimes the grace unity movement is called just that. Fellowship meaning we share. That's what the word fellowship means. But here is the idea of we share together. We join together. We unite together. We are in fellowship one with another. Not on the basis so much of what we believe but on the basis of God's grace. Now, again, that doesn't sound so bad on the surface, but begin to think about where you go with that. You hear about unity in diversity. About a hundred years ago, with the beginning of what is now known as ecumenism, or the ecumenical movement, all that really happened was various denominations were tired of fighting with each other, 
And there are hundreds of them, literally. And so they began to look for fundamental things that they could agree on, you know, the maybe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but fundamental things they could agree on as opposed to doctrinal differences that they were fighting about and had been. And so they decided, let's have unity in diversity. Now, you've seen this term, and I've used it before, and I've talked about it, and I've talked about how that is not real unity. If you are diverse, and diverse in very serious things, etc., big things, you know, then you may have union, but you certainly do not have unity. But you heard about unity and diversity, and you heard about people coming under the umbrella of God's grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that it's raining out there, the world is bad, it's full of sin, everything's going on, and I don't want to be out there in the world, I want to be as close-knit in fellowship with as many people as possible, but I know that I'm wrong about things, you're wrong about things, all God's children are wrong about things, and so we're going to have to come under an umbrella, as it were, of grace to be shielded from all of this bad that's raining down on us. And we can both step under the umbrella, or we can all step under this big umbrella of grace at the same time. So you heard about things like the division of gospel and doctrine. When I was going to school down in Virginia, this was a huge thing. We would go over to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to do that this morning, but you can do it. We would look at verses 1 through 4, and they would teach down at that school. They would teach the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, because it talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything else is doctrine. And so the idea was, let's have unity. Let's unite in belief about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If we can agree on that, we can have unity, and doctrine, though we may differ on it, doesn't really matter. And so they are distinct. Now, we could go to the Bible. We're not going to do that this morning. But we may, at, certainly in a few weeks here, but the idea is we could go to the Bible and we could easily show that gospel and doctrine are used interchangeably. They are talking about the same thing. In fact, in the New Testament, you can talk about the word, you can talk about the faith, you can talk about the gospel, you can talk about the doctrine, you can talk about the law of Christ, and you can see in all uh, different passages that we're referring to the same thing. But there's a distinction made between gospel and doctrine. There's a dis distinction that's made between essentials and non-essentials. And I've heard this more and more just in the last few years than I ever had before. Where brethren are even beginning to talk about, say, a particular doctrine, if you will. And they'll ask the question, is that necessary for salvation? We may have a belief about it. The Bible may discuss it, but it's not an essential. It's not essential for salvation. And so there is... And who knows who decides this? Me, you, all of us, each of us for ourselves. I read a page in the Bible and I say, well, that's essential, that verse, but that one's not. I mean, think about that and think about where you would have to go to to decide what is essential and what's not essential. But I'm hearing more and more of that terminology, more and more of that language. And then there is the plea for an open mind. That's not bad in and of itself. In fact, we would hope someone would have an open mind or an open heart. I wrote an article last week that appeared in the bulletin, Open Mind, Open Heart. And I talked about that. But open mind now is equated with, in fact, it's just another way of saying let's have tolerance. 
Again, tolerance is not bad in and of itself. But what do I tolerate? Do I tolerate what God tolerates and draw the line there? Or do I go further? And am I willing to tolerate and embrace and compromise all sorts of things that God would never tolerate? And in fact, explicitly says in here, I find that disgusting, an abomination, I will not tolerate. And so there is all of this kind of thing. And I could put up here a dozen more uh, statements like that, or phrases like this, or terms like this. But when we look at all of that, and we look at that as opposed to what we started with, grace and truth. All of these things are emphasizing the grace of God. And the grace of God has been reduced to unmerited favor. In fact, I asked in the bulletin this morning, I asked a question, what is grace? I remember sitting at Danville Road, that's the congregation, that's the place I first was a member of, where I was baptized, etc. Danville Road, Church of Christ in Decatur, Alabama. And I remember sitting there in one of the first, maybe the first adult Bible class I ever sat in. But it was very early. And as I sat there, the preacher who was teaching the class asked the question, what is grace? Well, we hadn't talked about grace a lot when I was growing up, so I didn't have a clue. What is grace? Somebody quickly answered from behind me, it's unmerited favor. And the guy said, that's right, it's unmerited favor. And they went on to talk about grace as unmerited favor. Well, I accepted that, as probably you have accepted that, because that's what I've heard. And then as time went on and I began to discuss or, or to study the Bible and discuss the things that are in it, I find, found some very interesting things about grace. One, that grace is not unmerited faith. And two, that the Bible combines grace always with truth. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 1, turn over there with me if you will, and let's read verses 14 through 17. The Bible talks about the incarnation of Jesus. I asked a question again in the bulletin about that this morning. But as it talks about the Word who became flesh, if you'll notice that down in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Notice, full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, Jesus died for us. Yes, Jesus shed his blood for us, and yes, that is an act of grace from God. But Jesus did not come with simple grace. Jesus did not, for example, favor us with unmerited salvation. (coughs) Jesus, for example, go back to verse 12, it says, as many as received him. That's a qualification. That's an exclusion. Those who do not receive Him do not have His grace. Notice as He goes on, verse 14 or 15. John bore witness of Him and said, This was the one of whom I spoke. The one that's coming after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. We're talking about the eternal Son of God. And of His fullness have we all received. What is that fullness? Grace and truth. Notice He says it again. Of His fullness have we all received and grace... For grace. Now we can talk about that phrase and we may at a later time, but look at verse 17. The law was given by Moses. We understand that. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So when I look just at that passage, before we go anywhere else, and I look just at that passage, what I understand is, wait a minute, brethren. 
When you're talking about all of these things, this unity and diversity, this open fellowship with one another, this umbrella of grace that makes no distinction in doctrine whatsoever, what about the truth? Grace and truth came by Jesus. Well, let's explore it a little bit further. Grace is not unmerited favor. And you heard me say that correctly. Grace is not unmerited favor. Meaning, and what I mean by that when I say that to people, is that there is nothing to be done to profit or benefit from God's grace. If I say it's unmerited favor, then what I'm saying is I don't have to do anything to have it. I don't have to do anything to deserve it. I don't have to do anything to benefit from it. It is just there. And there are people who believe that. There are universalists, for example, that believe with very few exceptions. I mean, the worst of the worst of the worst. A Hitler, for example, won't have God's grace. But beyond that, everybody will be under the umbrella of God's grace. Well, that is not what the Bible is teaching. Now, it's true. And I think this is where this idea... I've, I've really tried to study this and find out who first started this definition of grace. It's not clear who first began to talk about unmerited favor. So I can't tell you that. But it is true that God's grace is universally, universally offered to man. For example, if we said, who did Jesus die for? Jesus died for the world. Everybody. In the world. Everybody that lives at this present time. Everybody that was living at the time he was on the cross. He died for everyone. Well, what does that mean? That means that everyone can benefit from the blood that was shed on the cross. Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what ethnic background, what country you come from, what social status you have. It does not matter what sins you've committed. Jesus died for everyone. But now let me ask a question. Does that mean that everyone is going to be cleansed by the blood of Christ? Does that mean that everyone is going to benefit from that crucifixion on the cross? We know that's not so. We, we just last Sunday, we had people emphasizing Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14. And the idea that few there be that find it. Many go by the broad way to destruction. So it cannot mean that it is everybody benefiting from grace. So truly it's universally offered to man. But it's not individually extended without man's obedience. In short, you have to merit it. If I want to benefit from God's grace, I've got to merit to profit, I mean, I've got to do something, is what I'm trying to say. I've got to obey God to benefit from God's grace. Let's take that a step further and go back with me to Genesis 6. Now, this was read for us just a moment ago. Georgia read this for us. Well, let's go back at Genesis 6. The first time grace ever appears in the Bible is in Genesis 6. You don't see the word, I'm not saying that God didn't have any grace before that. I'm just saying that this is the first time God discusses. And the example is, of course, Noah. And when we look at Noah, we again look at verse 5. As Georgie read for us, the description, God looks down on the earth, what does he see? All of mankind, and mankind is evil, he's wicked, his only thoughts are evil, and that goes on continually. 
And so the Bible tells us, even further, in verses 11 and 12, some of the things that were going on. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. In fact, verse 12 says, God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So what would we say? God looks at the world, and what he finds in the world is man is bad. Real bad. Okay. And he's so bad that the Bible tells us God repented. He regretted. He changed his mind about man. He regretted he had ever made man. And he decided, I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth. But Noah had grace, got grace, God arbitrarily chose a man to give his favor to? No. Noah found grace. Let me tell you something. You can't find something without doing something. If I lose a coin, and I find that coin, it means I went searching, I put in the work, and I found it. When we look at Noah, we see a guy in the midst of a corrupt world where everybody was literally doing it, okay? Who didn't use that as an excuse, but who did something differently, and because he did something differently, he merited God's grace. God favored him. In fact, we look at the Bible and it tells us. The whole world's corrupt, but Noah found grace. Why does Noah find grace? Look at verse 9. The Bible says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, a righteous man, and perfect in his generations. That means that Noah was what he was supposed to be when everybody else was not. That's why Noah found grace. God didn't just look down here as the ultra-Calvinist or Bayesian theory would say, and God just arbitrarily chose a guy because you've got to save somebody. No. Noah found the grace. Notice as it goes on to describe verse 22. Here's the character of Noah. God gives him all these instructions. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. You know, I find it interesting. You notice that I've got it down here twice, not because I just wanted to repeat myself, but the Bible repeats it. Noah was a righteous man. Noah did everything God commanded. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. The Lord said unto Noah, Come you and all your house into the ark, for you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And then the Bible goes on to tell you in verse 5 again, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded. That's why Noah found grace. He did what God said do. And it sets the precedent. If this is the first discussion of grace, we shouldn't expect to find anything different throughout the Bible. I mean, it wouldn't be in harmony, would it? Those of you in my class this morning, it wouldn't agree with what Moses had recorded here. No, we should expect to find exactly this. We should see in every passage that the way you find the grace of God is you do what God commands. That's what we should expect to see. And that's exactly what we do see. It sets the precedent, if we're to profit from grace, likewise, we have to be righteous, like Noah was. We have to do the commands of God, like Noah did. Let's talk about the ark for a second. Look at Genesis 6 with me, if you will. When you look at Genesis 6, what do you see? Well, you see a corrupt world. You see a man who's been doing what's right, even though everybody else is doing what's wrong. 
And then God comes to him, and beginning in verse 14, God begins to give him some very, very specific instructions. In fact, God commands us in every generation just like he did Noah. And the instructions are very specific. We've just done things this morning. For example, we took the Lord's Supper. We did it today. Why? Because God commands it. We took unleavened bread. We didn't have anything else like some people do. We had unleavened bread. Why? Because God commands it. We had fruit of the vine. Why? Why only fruit of the vine every single Sunday, 52 times a year? Because God commands it. And the other things we've done this morning, the way we've sung hymns and we've prayed and, and so forth, we could have a list of commands and we would find those in the Word of God, God commands it. And just like Noah here, God says to him, I'm going to save you, Noah. I'm going to give you my grace because you've found that. You've been righteous. You do what I say do. Now, I've got some more commands for you. I want you to make an ark. Notice verse 14. I want you to make it of whatever this gopher wood or acacia wood or shatim wood or whatever in the world it is. Nobody knows. Doesn't matter. No one knew. Make it of gopher wood. And I want you to make this ark just so long and just so wide and just so high. And I want you to put one window in it and a door in it. I want you to pitch it or seal it within and without with this substance. And I want you to make it three stories high, not five, not two. I want you to bring these animals in here. Two of this kind of animal, seven of that kind of animal. He gave him a long list of instructions and he meant for them to be obeyed. And you know, when you look at that, you might ask a question. Suppose Noah had said, well, you know, I think I'll use maple for my living quarters. I like maple. I think it's, you know, it's a nice wood. Good to work with. Suppose Noah had said, man, that many cubits high? You know, I'm tired. Let's just make it one cubit less than that. What do you think would have happened to that boat if he said that? I think it would have sunk, personally. I don't think he just was this great boat builder and somehow built a ship the size of which, as far as we know, was not built again until the 1800s. He just built this great ship and this violent flood, this violent storm came in because he was such a great boat builder, he was spared. No, I think he went out there just like he'd done all of the previous 500 years. He did exactly what God said do. And so chapter 8 and verse 1, God remembered Noah. And the phrase means God took care of Noah because Noah did what God said do. Every time grace appears. Now you can go home and check this. In fact, just to make sure. I went through every single time yesterday. I spent a couple hours and went through every time the Bible uses grace. But go home and check it. I encourage you to do that. It would be good reading anyway. Every time grace appears in the Bible. I want you to notice this. Every single time without exception. When we're talking about God's grace to man. Now, there's man's grace to fellow man. You know, Jacob appeared to Esau and found grace in his sight. I'm not talking about that. Every time God extends his grace to man, it is always in the context of truth and obedience to it. And you hear what that's saying? 
In other words, every single time you see it in the Bible, it follows the same precedent as Genesis 6. It's not that God just gave grace. That's the way we hear it discussed and talked about. It is not just that God has this great favor for man. He loves us, and he does. But it is not that God is looking down here on Michael White. The pitiful state I'm in, the sinful state I'm in, and God loves me so much and he favors me so much that God is saying, Michael, I don't care what you do. Do whatever you want to do. And I'm going to say, that is not what God ever said. Not once. And had God been like that, there would have been a world full of people, literally, that God would have said, ah, they're not so bad. Yeah, they got their problems. They make mistakes, but they're not so bad. And then there would have been this Noah over here. Can you imagine what it would be like living in an entire world that's corrupt? Man, ain't nobody right. Not a single family member, not a single neighbor, not a preacher, not anybody. Everybody is corrupt. Can you imagine that? And you... Year after year after year after year for five to six hundred years are doing what's right. I don't imagine that was a very nice life. But Noah did it. Every time you see the same idea. God has his truth. God has his laws. The one who obeys is the one God extends his grace to. Let me give you some examples. The two ideas are inseparable. So let me give you some examples. You look at Psalm 84 and verse 11. The Lord will give grace and glory to those... Actually, what it says is He'll not withhold it from those. So I just changed a little bit. But the Lord will give grace and glory to those who walk uprightly. Think about what they're saying. God will give His grace. God will glorify. God will take to heaven. It's incredible to me. We watch sometimes, you know, we know of famous people. And they can live wicked, corrupt lives on this earth. And then when they die, suddenly they're in heaven. Everybody's talking about them, you know, they're spared now. They're feeling, they're at ease now. They're at peace now, etc., etc. That's not what God says. God says He gives His grace, He gives His glory to those that walk uprightly. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, We have received grace and apostleship, for that matter. But we've received that, notice, for obedience to the faith. What is Paul saying? God has been full of grace. Paul would say, man, look at me. God has favored me. God has been graceful to me. God has been merciful to me. And I was a sinner. But did God give that to me and say to me, Paul, like Greg, we were, you know, we, some of you, we were hearing this Friday night, Wes was talking about it. Paul, you're kicking against the pricks. And you know what? It's okay if you keep kicking against the ox goes, because I like you, Paul. Is that what Jesus said? Paul said, no. We've received grace for obedience to the faith. Notice in 2 Corinthians 9, we took the collection this morning. In chapters 8 and 9, God has a lot to say about grace. And a lot to say about grace being extended to people who are very giving people. Sacrificial even in their giving. And in chapter 9 and verse 8, God, God is able to make all grace abound to you. But notice what he goes on to say. That you in turn 
having gotten God's grace, may abound to every good work. That's exactly what happened with Noah, isn't it? Noah found grace in God's sight. God came to Noah and said, Okay, Noah, you're a good guy in a whole big corrupt world, and I'm going to save you. Now, here's what I want you to do. Can you imagine if Noah had looked at God and said, God, come on. Five, six hundred years now I've been doing everything you want me to do. No. God saves Noah. And he spares Noah. And he gives grace to Noah so Noah can go on doing what he's supposed to do. That's exactly the precedent set and what God continues to teach. Go over with me to Ephesians 2 for a moment. I'm not going to spend a long time here, although it's a passage I'm going to come back to in the future. I don't suppose now, in our day, there's any passage looked at when we talk about grace or mercy more than Ephesians 2. And usually verse 8 is pulled out, even by our own brethren. For by grace are you saved, and usually it ends right there. (laughs) Sometimes they say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and what they mean is belief. And what I was taught in school, and what many are taught, and what many are preaching probably this morning, is that faith Paul speaks of is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But I want you to notice literally what Ephesians 2 says. For by grace are you saved through faith. And then if you'll notice in verse 10, he goes on to say, it's, it's the gift of God, it's not only of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, verse 10. We are created in Christ Jesus. Now, we all know that happens in salvation when we're created into the body of Christ, a new man, a new creature. But for what purpose? Same purpose Paul was talking about in Romans 1. Same thing Genesis 6 is talking about. Same thing Psalm 84 is talking about. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, verse 10 is not a contradiction of verse 9. What that is saying is simply this. You cannot earn your salvation, like some people believe. No, it doesn't matter what I do. I can be bad. I can do all the bad things I want to do, as long as I do some good things to kind of even the score. You know, balance it out. No, you can't do that. You will only be saved, because of the bad things, you will only be saved by the grace of God. But that will be through faith, not simple belief, faith. And faith incorporates everything God says do. And in verse 10, when you do those things God says do, and we will have here in a few minutes an invitation in which you will be offered the chance to confess your belief in Jesus Christ. That's something you do. To acknowledge that you are repenting, you're changing your life and living your life for Jesus. To be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. When you're created in Christ Jesus, Jesus will not look at you just like God did not look at Noah and say, Dude, you've done a good job. Just sit on a rocking chair for the next couple hundred years. you got it made. No. got more for you to do. Jesus will say to you and to me, I've got more for you to do. There's a New Testament filled with things for you to do. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Hebrews chapter 12, we emphasize this last quarter. Let us have grace, the favor of God. Let us have it, whereby, with that favor from God, we may serve God acceptably, with reverence, godly fear. And finally, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, the last thing the apostle Peter left us was this. Grow. 
And in fact, in the original language, go on growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean practically? I mean, sometimes you're like me. You come down to the front of the building, you obey the gospel, you're baptized, and you don't know much. You've been to church a few times, and I mean that literally. You've been to a church of Christ maybe a few times, and you've seen that people do things differently. You don't really understand it. But you know now from the passages you've just studied, the night before even, Acts 2 and verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Mark 16, verse 16. He that believes and is baptized, you know that now. So you go down to the front of a building and you're baptized. And now you're a child of God. You have God's grace. And what would God say? Keep growing in it. Keep being favored by God. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus, your Lord. And when you learn things, add it to what you know. And do it. And if that means that three weeks later you learn this beautiful ponytail that you've groomed and grown so long, it's got to be whacked off, then you go down and you sit and you cringe in a barber's chair. But you say to yourself, I'm doing this for my Lord. And you add a ton of things because you learn them. And as you learn and as you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, you're just like great, great whatever Grandpa Noah who did the same thing so many years ago. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you here this morning? And you need to do what we were just talking about. You do believe, but you need to obey the Lord. Maybe you're here and you've been baptized sometime in the past. But you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm not living my life. I'm not different like Noah was different from the corruption in the world. I'm not growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. I'm not doing the things I need to do. I'm not living the life of grace that I'm supposed to be living. And I want to change that this morning. I want to come to my Lord and say to Him, help me, help me to be stronger. Help me to do what You want me to do. If you need to come, please come. Father, stand and sing.